0: This is a recording from Reunions Weekend 2010 at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. Why is it important for the university to foster innovation and entrepreneurship among students, staff, and faculty? The university's vice president for research, Tom Scalak, explains during a seminar from June 4, 2010. Let me tell you what I had uh, planned on talking about. Um, obviously, we all think about universities as a place to educate students. I mean, that's what universities are. So education is number one. But, of course, research being intertwined with education is important. So the idea that we create knowledge in our research laboratories or in the nation's national labs is another, I think, obvious point. But I think what's not as obvious, although it's becoming a much, much more... Um, high-attention subject inside the Beltway in the White House, as I'll mention later right now, is the idea that moving knowledge from the classroom and the basic laboratories at the nation's universities and federal labs out to the marketplace where the new ideas can make a difference in the ways I am describing here uh, is very, very critical. So disseminating knowledge as a key part of the university mission is actually, believe it or not, not something you hear everywhere uh, across the nation. Some still would espouse that a university is sort of a, a reserve where you go to learn and develop oneself, and then you step outside to the world where you apply your new personal ability, talent, and so on. And what we're interested in doing at UVA is making this a leading exemplar of a university where yes, you have reflective space and you're performing education, you're developing young people, you're creating new knowledge, but you have a seamless connectivity with social problems, the marketplace, Uh, you're able to respond to market pull, but also have your faculty and your students, your staff together be pushing ideas out as well or engaging in sort of a market push of new ideas. And so that's what I want to talk about. And we, can, we think of this as innovation serving humanity. It's disseminating knowledge. And yeah, it's involved in wealth creation. Uh, it's very, very important. You, they're very hard to dissect out doing social good or impacting health care or providing uh, higher throughput um, uh, alternative energy sources that can replace oil faster. These are all connected to wealth creation. So we think about them all together. Let me share a Jefferson story with you because that's very, very important at UVA. Um, You all know probably many stories about Jefferson, but there's one you may not have heard, I'm going to guess, and that is that in 1789 he actually proposed the metric system to the U.S. Congress. And he was soundly rebuffed by the U.S. Congress, who basically told him to go away because they were happy with the current system of weights and measures. They didn't think they needed a new one. And, of course, later it came from France and became a worldwide standard and so on. So he learned a lesson in innovation, I like to think, and we tell this story to our students and faculty that Often, an entity it can be a large bureaucracy, like a university, it can be the U.S. government, it can be an established corporation, like for example, General Motors. No one here worked for General Motors, I, I didn't hear, there. okay. Where, you know, you, one can become insular in one's strategic thinking or design thinking innovation practices. And so you might tend to overlook new disruptive ideas. And so we just want to learn that lesson and be open to outside change agents, open to environmental forces, and teach our students and our faculty to behave in a manner consistent with the idea that no one has a perfect crystal ball and can predict the future. So we have to continually engage in opportunity-seeking and the problem-solving, the critical thinking that can lead you to then realize those opportunities. Okay, so that's the change in culture we're seeking uh, in this innovation initiative for UVA. Uh, Comparing familiar ways, like the U.S. Congress, versus new ways. So I've seen this many times out in the private sector. So in no means would I describe this as a unique characteristic of a learning organization like a university or a school system. I think this is very common in government entities, NGOs, and private organizations. I was recently consulting with a Fortune 500 company, um, Abbott Laboratories in North Chicago. My expertise is in um, blood flow in small blood vessels and how to engineer new blood vessels or how to um, use blood in diagnostic assays in useful ways where you can learn about the state of a patient's health or disease. And some of you may know uh, that The idea of doing analysis of a very tiny blood sample, like a very painless finger prick, put a tiny sample of fluid on a little chip and have it circulate around, measure the biochemical constituents and so on, read that out with microelectronics, is a new way of doing personalized medicine. And um, so blood on a chip. But the engineers in this major company were still thinking about doing the mixing of the blood in this tiny chip the way you would think about stirring your cup of coffee to mix the, the cream with the coffee. And that's called convective mixing and it doesn't work. When you're at very, very small microscales, everything has to happen by diffusion. And so you need to build the thing much differently to have geometries that allow these these different materials to mix uh, in a very different way than stirring with the spoon. And so thinking in opposites can often lead to new designs. You can't always use the same thinking. And this is just something that we would like to have pervading our curriculum in all disciplines at the university, not just the sciences or engineering, but also what are traditionally called liberal arts and humanities and social sciences. What's the value of research You you yeah, Probably don't need to say to this crowd. Uh, it's just it's, that it's a great education for tomorrow's world, that you learn to ask your own questions, get data, make observations, do critical thinking, and arrive at new solutions. And of course, it creates the, uh, the economy of the future creates U.S. opportunities for our own children. You know, this mantra that China has more honor students today than we have students total is the most striking way to think of this global challenge we're all facing. You hear this a lot from different quarters, from the White House, from company leaders, from university leaders. I actually think we have some unique things in our U.S. system of education and entrepreneurship that haven't yet been grasped by either the EU or Asia and it is what basically is captured by the term innovation writ broadly. Uh, so I think it, I'm very optimistic, actually, about enacting this. So, yeah, this is what we hope students learning about innovation must learn to do, is sometimes to think in opposites in order to address uncertainty in research. So the example here would be, let's say you're an economics major in the college with an arts minor, you're, but you're working at the World Bank, you're deciding how to deliver food and water in Africa. Well, our Calder conference at which we had a physicist from the Brookhaven National Lab talking across to an artist and a sculptor about how to create a mobile. This conference dealt with the balance of elements. You know, Calder was actually a mechanical engineer. And when he created the mobile, which is actually he's credited with inventing, he was interested in the dynamic balance of objects. And, and you see that illustrated in some of his um, hanging uh, sculptures in particular. Well, if you apply it to the, the motion of water, you might think the obvious is for drinking, washing, you know, cooking, and so on, but actually you have to pour the water on the ground, so it might be opposite to your uh, obvious notion. The point here is that true innovation can be hard to recognize. And typically in education, we teach to a goal, we teach to a right answer, and so on. But real innovation can make life permanently different. And because of that, we have trouble imagining change because most human beings know how they're living and what they're doing and what tools they're using and so on. So you can think of innovation as being invisible until it bursts into view. And this is my favorite picture of that. So this shows this volcanic activity not in Iceland but off Fiji um, last year, or Tonga. I'm sorry, not Fiji, close. And... um, You you can imagine that the surface of the ocean would have been completely calm before the eruption. But now there's a highly disruptive event. Now that it's there, it's obvious to everyone. And that's often the case with great inventions like the iPod or other things of this nature. So we like to characterize this this way, this full circle from basic discovery, sciences, ideas all the way around to translating them to new, possibly disruptive innovation. Up at the top there, you see basic discovery and understanding. The idea would be, this is for a medical example, you come down here to a prototype or a process, you introduce it to the marketplace over there, product launch, but by the time it's out in the marketplace, there's often feedback on it. How does it work? You know, is it ideal? Could there be modifications made? And it often puts you right back in a basic research setting. So we are asserting, and that's part of the culture change at UVA that we're hoping to enact through this innovation activity, that faculty, as students, staff, do better basic research. That's up in the discovery area, new knowledge creation, by immersing themselves in complex translational challenges. And that's, in fact, what an entrepreneurship program does as well. These are very hard intellectual uh, market-based challenges in many cases. And it often makes you better at discovering new knowledge or acquiring new learning. And we all know the best organizations are continuous learning organizations, those that adapt to market forces, environmental forces, see the future as best they can by being very good at continuous observation and learning, and then applying this to the next life cycle. Um, this is just an example of how big one particular sector is. You know, healthcare innovation, it's a trillion dollars. That's between Spain and Brazil's GDP. And this just shows some of the relevant data there. This is just to make the point that it's big and important. And, of course, energy is ten times that size. You know, there's other fields that are different sizes. This is intended to show how the nation's basic research investment, which often comes to universities, and a lot of people think about that. The federal government funds through grants, research at universities, federal labs, and so on, that ideas are brought to be ready for the marketplace, and then they go out to the private sector. This shows that cycle, Um, starting with university hiring and building of laboratories and programs at the far left, corporate-funded R&D in some cases. Coming over here, though, uh, there's a key concept, early-stage proof-of-concept funding at universities, being very important to move things out of classrooms and laboratories to the point where a third-party funder could take them out and make those ideas into something real that can affect a marketplace or a social need. And so this is a critical need in this pipeline. And what happens is this creates jobs, 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 jobs in U.S. GDP, jobs and GDP, and finally jobs, GDP, and healthy Americans. Now this is for a healthcare example, but you could write a similar example for an information system or, um, or an alternative energy source, and so on and so forth. So I'm going to show you some examples where we've had uh, foundation funding, so it's essentially philanthropic funding, to fill that critical gap. We actually consider those two circles, the critical gap in the nation's innovation pipeline. Because there's a lot that's been built up in universities, I'm gonna say a minute more about how much in a minute, from federal funding. It has trouble, because we don't have enough proof of concept funding, hitting the right milestones toward market applications. So a third party funder, say a series A round, can come in and take it out, or a company is willing to license it out. And that's because of the risk adversity. Capital markets have moved off to mezzanine level. And so the gap is actually widening right now. It's not closing. So this is very critical. And the reason we think it's critical for the government to put the money in and philanthropy can put money in, foundations can put these monies in. But it's okay from our perspective, probably not to your surprise, that the government does this. Because if they were to simply give the same funds back in tax breaks to the private sector, let's say back to Medtronic, General Motors, Google, Apple, you know, and so on, it would not fill up the innovation pipeline. The reason is because public stockholder pressure prevents those companies from putting their money at that stage in the pipeline they're risk averse. So generally stockholder pressure for quarterly returns is preventing that investment. That's why Bell Labs, DuPont, you know, everyone is killing their early R&D investments. So universities are the early stage. It's probably 5% of getting something all the way to market, but it's a critical 5% that that little box right there. There's so many models for this. It's been done by alumni setting up venture funds, privately managed alumni setting up internal venture funds, endowments taking a slice of endowment, in rare cases, actually. Most endowments don't like to do that. They don't do, you know why? They're, they're risk-averse. Right, exactly. So it's a very unique source. And I think for the, for the same reason large companies don't do it, I think most endowments also don't do it. So we need some unique proof-of-concept funds. We actually just wrote a big concept paper for the White House on this gap at their request from UVA, and this is the hottest topic in Washington, how how to fill that red circle, because everyone knows it's a gap. And I'm convinced that taxpayer dollars, all of our dollars going to the government, need to come there, not back as tax breaks to existing companies, although that would be nice too, because they won't put it in the early stage. It won't happen. History shows that the past 20 years. So, anyway, it's a very critical cycle. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, so, right now, the University of Virginia does not have lots of funding with you, you don't have a pot that you sit on for a selected We do. Uh, I'm going to tell you about some of it. Yeah, we do. And we've built it up by providing this vision I'm giving you today to a number of outside partners and have them be very excited about it. So, we've slowly built up such. A set of such funds, we don't think it's enough to fund all the available innovation, though. So, but yeah, we do have, we have more than most universities, and the ones we are investing, we're beating Stanford on ROI and other major players in innovation. So we think we have a very good model at UVA. That's what I want to tell you about. But that circle's not been filled up enough. So we're working on this continuously and telling the government to work on it, too. Well, this is just to express the notion that a university, as as these two questions just indicated, can do quite well at this. One reason is because we're a pretty comprehensive ecosystem. Most companies are are arranged around a niche or a market need or to supply a contract to a federal government uh, customer that that represents a very big market or something else. But universities have scientific discovery, creativity, business, education, uh, technological innovation in their engineering and science departments, art, liberal arts, politics, and so on. When you put these all together, you have a chance of producing innovations that, you know, for example, would keep an elderly person out in the world lo- later in life than they otherwise would be through technology, distributed care, and so on. You could think of other um, examples. So this is really culture change that we're after, but culture change that makes a difference with wealth creation as well. Um, this says the same thing, just showing the pieces of UVA that, that make a big difference. Um, obviously, we have many good universities, a big uh, college with many excellent fields of study. We have a comprehensive medical center. We have a top-ranked business school. It was in the top ten for many years. A number one-ranked school of commerce, um, thanks to a lot of support by alumni like Mark. Excellent. And so, you know, they're over in China now. The dean of the Commerce School can go say to China, well, why don't you uh, acquire our core business skills training because we're number one in the U.S.? This is very good for UVA and our reputation and our ability to achieve additional programs. Engineering had the first business minor in the U.S. It's actually not developed at a high rate, but it it was another indication of the crossover work. In our School of Law, we have four Institute of Medicine members. Again, think about the crossover. One of them is the ex-chief counsel for the Food and Drug Administration. So we have very good talent that crosses over fields. And so when you have a comprehensive community, you can attack problems uh, of major social impact. Here, here's my picture of the Commerce School. That's McIntyre's new edition. You know, this is a fantastic recruiting tool to have students come here and sit in a trading pit and and with stone walls and uh, air conditioning and uh, learn their craft, if you will, in this fantastic setting. So students benefit from this change, this culture change, for sure. Well, here's one slide addressing a little bit of the, you know, are universities going to do it themselves? Are we really a good source of innovation? This is some data on that, that 25 years ago, 70% of Fortune, or, yeah, Fortune, I'm sorry, R&D 100 awards, which are these awards nominated and picked by an industry panel. It's not an academic choice. It's an industry choice. Uh, 25 years ago, 70% of these were from Fortune 500 companies. Now, 70% are from public organizations and universities, like national labs, universities, and other entities of that type. So it shows the flip that's occurred. And it's because most large companies won't invest heavily enough in R&D to make them candidates for these innovation-oriented awards. So, de facto, universities are a primary pipeline for innovation. Uh, Now, to flip to the philosophy side just for one second, this is what we'd like every student to realize, and faculty member, and external partner that we work with as well, that every child's an artist. But the problem is, how do you remain an artist once one grows up? How do you keep exploring and keep innovating and, and being bold and being at the boundary of your field? That's what we should aspire to, because then you're in a position to make the disruptive innovation. So there are examples all over um, the university. In art, the Calder Sculpture um, uh, Conference was something that we held around our display of a new Calder sculpture up on the the space between um, the main library and Newcomb Hall. You can see that over there. Um, We had Hearst Business Media here recently for a two-day innovation event. This is one of the nation's arguably most innovative companies. They had 13% top-line growth last year in a very tough year. They came here with 12 other C-suite leadership team from around the country, and we put in front of them some of our architects, some of our artists, some of our business scholars, some of our engineers, lawyers, and so on, and within a week after the event, where we had you know, done, done a few exercises in, on how to design forward, uh, in this case IT products for business management, they were already redesigning one of their websites based on a, a drawing experience that they had had with some of our uh, architecture faculty. In music, business, Darden, commerce, architecture, engineering, medicine, just showing a few things that are happening, there are events all around UVA and programs building that speak to, you know, support for innovation. Um, this is the one I just described with Hearst Business Media. You know, one thing that came out of that is you know there's a saying now that the new MBA is the MFA, meaning Master of Fine Arts. The idea being that you could design your way or create your way to a next important conceptual development, which you then reduce to practice but it may not come just through a business orientation or just through a, say, engineering design orientation, but you may need, you know, the right brain and the left brain cooperating on a new innovation. Okay, so UVA knows innovation. I don't have to tell you all about the rotunda. In a way, designed by Jefferson, now a historic landmark. Well, that was innovative at the time. It had chemistry labs in the building and so on and so forth. And, uh, of course, has stuck as a leading public university that we are now still today. One of our most recent research buildings is this one over in the School of Medicine. Well, it contains now the world's most second most highly cited faculty. And as you'll see in a minute, a national leader in technology licensing, to Mark's point from before. So yeah, we would like to invest more of our own portfolio in our own innovation. And I'll show you some results from that. Um, Undergraduates get great learning experiences when they get immersed in an opportunity to link what they're doing in a classroom or lab to a real-world practice. This is done in full-year capstone design classes. For example, in the engineering school, different science departments in the college have similar immersive experiences. And we'd like to see this become much more pervasive. So every student at UVA can have an innovation experience. The Darden School just built a new building called, they're calling it the iLab, sorry, a new room. It looks like this. It's just a room full of round tables with a big, long whiteboard is actually what it is. And, um, but it's quite new in a sense because from the Darden School's perspective, the way business education has been in this country for the past 30 years is that there's a lecturer like I'm standing now in front of an amphitheater like this one and you have to come prepared for class and that expert calls on you and you get the information going like that. This is a symbolic gesture on their part that by getting diverse teams of people around roundtables and sharing more across disciplines, you actually could innovate your way forward perhaps more quickly than just applying known business practice to different problems following a case-based method. And the reason for the whiteboard is that, again, to engineers is a little more obvious, but I think this is the newness here, is that you would start with a conceptual questioning and problem definition period and then move during the semester experience down the whiteboard to the detailed design phase. Okay, now we've conceptualized what the new opportunity is. Let's reduce it to practice. So they're going to proceed by introducing this into their business education. You know, we have a 2,000-some acre property called Morven Farm, some of you may know. It was donated to the university by John Kluge, um, who... uh, wanted this place to be important in research and innovation? Well, it's used in a variety of ways, one of which is we brought 43 Senate chiefs of staff recently to discuss ideas for the country moving forward. In other uses, students actually do archaeology research about how Jefferson envisioned the evolution of agriculture. So let me get to some ways we're running um, internal processes here uh, right now. Uh, one way we raise some of these proof-of-concept funds that you asked about was from the Coulter Foundation. They funded um, nine programs, I don't know if I said that here, across the country. Our cohort is Stanford, Michigan, and Duke, and there are actually a total of nine. And They all got $5 million, a million dollars a year over five years. And so what we do with it is we invest proof-of-concept money, in six to eight projects that we we review with a very diverse review board, uh, which I think I'll show in a minute, um, and we have them do milestone-driven work. We have the will to kill projects if they're not hitting their milestones. We move the money to other projects. We give iterative coaching and mentoring from outside experts. We bring in practicing venture capitalists, people who've run small companies, people who've been project managers in big companies, CEOs of big and small companies, lawyers, medical people, nurses, customers, get them all working together. The first $2 million produce 40 patent disclosures in two years. That's 10 times the national rate. It's about four times or two times, two to four times Stanford's rate. 50% have already been converted to commercial licenses. That's four times the national rate. And there's a number of, you know, Solutions here that have been envisioned. Imaging the beating heart in humans. That's already been adopted by Siemens Corporation as one example. It's in their clinical scanners in a very short time. Um, Some systems biology approaches for treating brain cancer. A device for improving childhood surgery for inserting ear tubes to drain fluid from the ear. That product's already on the market and started with students doing innovation. It was in a catalog within 18 months and being shipped to customers. So it went all the way from lab to productization and acquisition by a company in a very short time. So we have some low-hanging fruit and some more complex projects. So this idea of the three Ps here, people, patents, and products, this is something, again, you don't often hear on many campuses very explicitly. We're trying to make it more of a part of the culture here. And this is obviously the rationale. Okay, here's some uh, results of that. Here's just eight... UVA startup companies, you can see the deals that were made on each of these with the private sector. These are third-party investments, you know, Series A level investments. Some of the bigger ones were Cetagon, which had up to 80 million in milestones. was a Medtronic acquisition, and Adenosine, which was sold to clinical data systems here. And there are many others. Um, The role of outward-facing relationships. We thought it was important to... Eliminate the not-invented-here culture. So in other words, to think that this part, the idea that happens in a lab or with a faculty member or a student design team is all that's needed is often part of the mythology of university innovation, that, that universities have been a bit... Uh, iconoclastic and think that that's most of the way to the end goal, and, of course, we realize it's not. It's usually 5% of the way or 2% of the way or something like that. So that's a good first realization. But the same is also true of companies. Many companies have been very insular, say, well, if it's not invented here, we don't want it, and sort of get into patent battles with uh, 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 competitors. So we like to have a good two-way flow of information with outside partners. Find talent anywhere and have inside-outside change agents and relationships. So relationships are key. We've built up a large set of them with venture partners over here, investor networks, foundations, and corporate partners. And this is just actually a partial list. Um, Deb mentioned the Venture Summit. So we've done this two years in a row now a university-wide event bringing people from all the 11 schools who are out in the world of venture capital. And we have people in the world of venture capital, you know that had their degrees in history, English, uh, astronomy, mathematics, commerce, business, engineering. they're, they're all over the university, medicine. Uh, we brought 15 billion in venture capital, TVA each time, you know under active management. And what we did was offer sort of a four- to eight-year window on the future of certain disciplines, like alternative energy, personalized medicine, uh, microelectronics, and things of this nature, not thinking that we would offer a better deal flow because these people see the best deals where they sit in Boston, New York, Palo Alto every day anyway. So we were under no illusions. But they're very appreciative of having a little more distant window, because as I said at the outset, no one has a crystal ball. And when a deal hits anyone's desk in the private sector anyway, the first thing they do is pick up the phone and call a national lab or a university research lab typically and say, well, what do you think of this technology? So it's very reasonable to think we should be in a continuous discussion with the venture world about future opportunities. That's what universities do really well, think about the future. Um, Having said that, we did put some UVA spin-out companies in front of them. So we take a half day and have like a live fire pitch session where actual UVA spin-out companies pitch. Um, The first year we did six, and six out of six got funded in the next 12 months. Um, None from UVA portfolio money or endowment money, I have to say, but outside money. Uh, the total was about $15 million for the f- ones that pitched a year ago over the ensuing 12 months, some by direct contacts from this event, some by you know, networking. Um, and we put another six in front of them this year, I think, uh, four, four or six. So we'll see if we keep up our 100% record. But this is quite a unique event in the country. we were told by most attendees they've not been to an event like this anywhere else in the country, at Duke, at you know, uh, Harvard, at MIT, at Stanford, and so on. So we're quite happy with this event, and we're going to keep going. And we also use it to link strongly to an event like the entrepreneurship program in the in the School of Commerce. Well, we'd like to have, you know, an uh, add-on event for people dedicated to the teaching of entrepreneurship to be part of this event and people in engineering, you know, technology-based startup ventures to be part of this event and so on. So we strongly try to link it to every school and their interest and the students' interest in each discipline. Uh, okay. So, you know, are these cultural changes and structural changes working at all? This is just another example and this has to do with acquiring more proof of concept funds from another source. The first one, that Coulter example, being a n- not-for-profit foundation. This one being that within uh, two months of a first visit by a top-ten drug company, AstraZeneca, from Sweden, looking for a global U.S. US partnership, if you will, they visited five universities. um, Duke, Penn, Johns Hopkins Medical Center, the world's biggest probably, UC San Francisco Medical Center, considered one of the best medical centers, and UVA. And they only came back to UVA. And the reason is this cultural shift that we've put in place. So it's sort of an attitudinal approach to innovation across the whole university. So they came back and said, you know, the science is about the same everywhere. We could go to Stony Brook. We could go to Duke. We can go to Harvard. Yeah, and we could go to Virginia because we have excellent research labs. But they came back here because of the whole institutional attitude to being an open partner and a good long-term partner, and a realistic partner. Not saying that our idea is 50% of the deal. No, no, it's 5% of the deal. But it's still important to be connected to that innovation engine. And their comment was, well, we need your ideas. You're not going to beat us at toxicology or product development? No, that's correct. But they need our ideas. So that's what a good partnership can look like. So what they appreciated was our integration of all the needed functions. We were, had a tolerance for risk in exploring long-term work, collaborative people across the institution, as I showed earlier, involved leadership, a, a dedicated relationship manager, sort of a concierge for this outside partner to the university, and the desire for long-term partnership. So we've seen it working well. So I often use this quote um, to a variety of people in our state government and our alumni base, our faculty, our students, and whoever else we're maybe working with. That if you haven't discarded a major opinion or acquired a new one over the last few years, check your pulse. You may be dead. And, you know, this is just a way to express this, the Picasso concept, that we all have this artist in us. It's the commitment to continuously be open to new ideas and learn that we will have the opportunity for commercialization, disruptive innovation, and not just to make funds for the institution's endowment or for whoever is the head of the startup company, Um, although that's good when you see a few Ferraris driving around town by students and so on. That's excellent because then it it reinforces the culture. But really to influence the world, that this is the way – this planet is going to become sustainable. It's only through innovation that we will be able to continue to have peace, to continue to be healthy, continue to have the opportunity for our grandchildren to be working in this country and not being a service provider to some other country and so on. So having a little bit of urgency about that is good. Okay, for the future... um, you know, some of you asked already about, well, what are other ways to do this early stage idea of funding for commercialization? Recognizing that new ideas can change the world, but how do you get them funded and moved out from the university? Also recognizing that distilled experience is a very potent accelerator. This means that we really value it when alumni like yourselves come back, sometimes spending half, a half hour with a team and applying your experience to it can redirect what they're doing very quickly and be a tremendous value added. You know, the dropping in of distilled coaching experience at intermittent times during a product development is a very, very important step. So anyway, based on these two thoughts, we are wondering whether there's another model. So I often use this analogy of this innovation system. I call it the bubbling swamp of innovation, out of which, of course, we hope to see some grid great redwoods grow, you know, like a Microsoft. I mean, we need some big ones. We can't just have small ones. But to do that, you have to have this swamp. And that's all of our researchers and innovators to which these outside partners want to be at the side. They want to be sitting at the side of the bubbling swamp so when something bubbles up, they can take it out. So how do we achieve that? Well, I've shown you a few of them. The Coulter program, the AstraZeneca program. We have a co-managed fund with Johnson & Johnson for which they have no intellectual property rights for those of you who are interested in this model. They just give us the funds. We have a board member sitting on the board making the picks. But if they want to take it out, they do the deal to take it out. But they value that co-managed fund because it gets them close to our new ideas and our people over the long term. They build trusted, personal relationships. And then when something does bubble out, they'll be there ready to take it. And we would be crazy not to work with a partner like J&J, who's had quarterly revenue increase, I think, every quarter since 1947. So they're a very high-quality partner. Um, But having said that, and we are building those proof-of-concept funding mechanisms. Maybe there's another way to bring in some more gifted translators, is what I've called them here, sort of providing the Rosetta Stone of translation from the bubbling swamp out to new ventures, deals, drugs, devices, partners, IT products, software, whatever it might be. So what that new entity or process would look like, I think, is still a question mark. Actually, Mark, you alluded to one. We could take a slice of our endowment. Okay, but then who would manage it? Should I manage it or should you manage it? You and your friends manage it? You know, there's a lot of possibilities and we're open to any of those. And so we think there might be a new model. And no one in the country that has one that I would say is perfect. You know, even if you think about Stanford, they actually have sunk a, about a $14 million into their patent bank, as they call it, that are just lying fallow. And they're coming under increased pressure to think about, you know, what, what is that doing? Now that's not a large amount of money to create to, compared to what Google created. Nevertheless, they're coming under fire for how they make their decisions. And so no one has the perfect model because no one has the crystal ball, right? And if something's not ready to be commercialized, outside people don't want to bet on it. Why would an inside person bet on it? So, you you know, someone has to take the risk and believe that the long-term investments will pay off. So we think there's a big potential to create this Rosetta Stone in proof-of-concept research or fill the funding gap and we'll you know we'll see if we can come up with a way to do that. Uh, why does innovation matter? I'm just going to close with a few now. General, more general comments that you know, and uh, hopefully I made this point earlier that it matters because it penetrates all areas at our comprehensive ecosystem. It makes students better able to learn later in life if they've been able to link their major say in art history over to a social challenge like. Designing a better deep water uh, oil valve you know, to prevent what happened in the Gulf recently. Or a poet. So artists fill the blank canvas through innovation. Poets fill the blank cage through innovation. Scientists, they have to decide what experiment to do next. It's not linear. It's just like Picasso trying to figure out how to fill that canvas. It's quite nonlinear, And so we think these have a lot in common. And if we could provide that to students, that would be an improvement in the way we deliver education or guide students to learning. And it's important, of course, because innovation-based economies are what are going to provide for freedom, peace, and social health. And we all think about Silicon Valley, Singapore, taking their shipping revenues and pouring it into a knowledge-based economy. But, you know, they're under fire. They've not produced. It's not clear their system is going to work. They're building big institutes with their shipping revenues so they could replace, eventually, that revenue maybe with other knowledge-based economics. But it hasn't happened yet. We'll, We'll see. But we think that the regionalization or democratization of innovation is very important. If innovation happens here, just like when Jefferson founded this university in the middle of the country, you know, the ideas are gonna be flung worldwide. They'll be best shored to wherever they can be best put in the marketplace. But they need to originate in a place where it's gonna be this bubbling swamp of new ideas, which is what a university is. Here's an example. Uh, we built this bay game that Deb mentioned also. This is very interesting because the Chesapeake Bay is going to fail to meet water quality standards mm-hmm. set 10 years ago. And the White House has declared this essentially a crisis now. So we, did, we wanted to work on this to try to basically save the bay and improve you know, this, which, this watershed, which is the most diverse watershed um, in North America and the largest estuary in North America. And so it's a model in a sense, of a diverse uh, watershed for the rest of the world, where water problems will be a big problem in the future. Um, so what we did was we put a team together that, had, that took advantage of our comprehensive ecosystem. So we have faculty from eight different schools: law, uh, the college, you know, environmental science, engineering, uh, infectious diseases and in medicine, and so on. And we built this is basically a computer simulation of the diverse stakeholders who have a role in Bay behavior. So farmers, fishermen, uh, policymakers, mixed-use real estate developers, and so on. We built it into an agent-based simulation. So each autonomous agent in the simulation, a fisherman decides how many fish to catch. Do I take a loan and buy a new boat? A farmer decides, do I use high-nitrogen farming for high yield, or do I use low-nitrogen or polyculture methods, which could affect their yield, but may affect their market price they get for their crop, because they sell it in the organic section at Harris Heater instead of the regular section. So these are hard to predict in a complex market system. So what we're doing here is using agent-based modeling to predict outcomes. And what we did find is that if you do nothing by 2016, the blue crabs are dead. If you have certain connected behaviors by policymakers, real estate developers, farmers, fishermen, you can begin to save the blue crab population just as one visible marker of the effect on this diverse ecosystem. The key effect, by the way, is lowering nitrogen in farming. That's one of the most important effects. Um, And we have one of the world's experts in nitrogen footprint here at UVA in the college, Jim Galloway. So, And he's involved with this as well. We have the White House Chief of Staff for Water Quality, Chuck Fox, involved. We now have Philippe Cousteau involved. So he's been on Larry King uh, Live recently and CBS Morning News, um, portraying to the public the impact of this balance of behaviors in a real working marketplace between consumer behavior, the people harvesting the fish, the people doing the farming, policymakers who can either incent or regulate a regulated marketplace and how those all interact, because most things in life are a balance. So the idea here is this is an attempt to provide a complex simulation that can educate citizens about the balance needed in their behaviors and how they vote, how they behave in their private life that has an effect on a system like the Bay. And this is obviously transferable to financial systems. Actually, we've talked about writing a game like this for a financial market. Uh, it's transferable to a university. It's transferable to lots of other um, processes, like, for example, introducing solar panels into a community, um, what that would do to energy prices, and so on and so forth. So there's lots of ways this is applicable. So we're pretty happy about the progress of this. We're also writing a through K-12 version to try to get this ability to play this game into local high schools in the six-state watershed that surrounds the bay so the next generation of students will by their own behavior, also help with the water quality problem. Here's one of the outcomes I already mentioned. This is an example that the second most common childhood surgery, some of you may know, is when children get an earache because they got an infected ear and the pressure's building up because they have fluid. They have to go to the hospital and sometimes, in the worst case, they have to put a hole and put in ear tubes to drain the fluid. That's the second most common childhood surgery in the country and it causes a lot of pain, obviously, and, you know, for the kids. Um, We invented a device to put in the little ear tubes more easily, a little mechanical insertion technique, and also a teaching aid to teach doctors in medical centers how to deal with ear tube insertion more uh, reliably uh, and faster and with higher quality outcomes. And so this is already, this is the catalog. Uh, I think I have it circled there. You can see this is the teaching device. It's on the back of this major catalog. And it had been, this is about 18 months from undergraduate students at UVA beginning to design the device till it got in a catalog and was shipped to customers. So it's actually a great example of all the way from student education through research, innovation, R&D, out to the marketplace very, very quickly because of this inside-outside access. And it makes a difference for people. How exceptional is research at UVA? And I think for this crowd, I'm not sure this is the best example, but I like this example because it's important for us to communicate to the public, our board of visitors, state legislature, federal government. The person who did that project I just showed is Shane pierce Coller. She was named the top innovator in the world under 35 by MIT Innovation Magazine a few years ago. Uh, What's it called? Uh, tech Reviews. MIT Tech Review, I, I think it's called. How rare is this? This honor. This is... Um, in the top 1% of young people in science and technology. That's equivalent to the achievement in sports of UVA winning the Division I Men's Soccer Championship last year, which we're all extremely proud of. And, you know, the point being obvious, that we have a lot of innovators here, as do many universities, um, that are really at the very, very top of their fields. And the key is to link, make that recognized and link it out to society and to marketplaces where it can make a difference why is research valuable? Because a great education uh, lets you prepare for the world of tomorrow, not the one that's here today. That has to do with the fact that innovation is sometimes invisible. You have to get people in the habit of valuing curiosity and reaching judgments, not getting the right answer on the exam where there's one right answer, but reasoning to a judgment in the face of uncertainty, which is what the real world always has to do with this balance. And um, that's not done so frequently in undergraduate curricula. And there's an example, Diane Longo. She got her bachelor's degree here in 2005. Well, she's now working in San Francisco trying to find a cure for diabetes through a systems model. So that's creating the economy of the future so our children can enjoy opportunity and the pursuit of happiness as Jefferson said. So this is our sort of dream for innovation at UVA, that we have every one of our 20,000 students or so learning innovation through a personal experience, like the few I've described, where they actually get immersed in the process of addressing uncertainty and coming to a solution during their time here. And we've already begun with the School of Architecture, actually with architecture students, and a faculty member, Bill Sherman, who's leading our UVA Innovation Initiative, trying to combine things that are happening in commerce, Darden, engineering, medicine together into kind of a coherent innovation structure that includes entrepreneurship, but other, f- other forms of ideation, like inventing the mobile or new forms of uh, providing content in media. As newspapers are dying, you know, how are we going to produce an educated citizenry in the future? Someone has to solve that problem. And uh, so we're working on all those things. This is a diagram of a building that might be a spiritual gesture about innovation at UVA. Could be located centrally, right by South Lawn. Could be located um, in one of our research parks. It could be that we deconstruct this into small pods that are distributed in every school. So every school has one. You know, why do partnerships matter of the type I described with Coulter and the leading drug company and other partners? You know, Alfred Nobel said this, that home is where I work. And I work everywhere. So, and so, and this you see is out. This is Alfred Nobel from the Nobel Prize, but this is not his home in Scandinavia. You, you can probably tell it doesn't look like Scandinavia. I think this is in San Remo, I believe, um, probably in Italy. And so he's away from home. But his point is, he's always thinking. He's always innovating. He's always observing what's around him and making lateral connections to what he might have been working on in his home lab. But then he learned something new in another place, another environment, and he made connections. He made lateral connections that let him be truly creative. And this is an example. We recently had visitors here to Charlottesville. This is the AstraZeneca team from Sweden. So this is the back of the the envelope, um, back of the napkin uh, ideation process. And literally, this napkin is now a uh, corporate project in Sweden that was created here. So, the young appreciating the old. The point here being that this is my daughter, actually, on a sculpture uh, that's probably several hundred years old in Padua, Italy. The point being that we're always standing on what went before us. And that's what we typically teach at universities, right? A body of knowledge to respect what came before. But if you boil all this thinking down, the only thing we can count on is change and innovation. That's the only thing that's continuous. So what we hope We'll have students of the future, university faculty, thinking about Is what are the things worth doing, and then how will we accomplish those things. And so here's a couple of thoughts about that I like to use. That Brunowski, this is a great little book, Jacob Brunowski. Basically in this thin book, he talked about the idea that when you carry out scientific and innovation work, you're behaving according to a set of values that are also informative to the way any human society has to behave to be effective. So he said, what science has to teach us is the irresistible need to explore. That's the Picasso, artist, child, in us all. And there's are attributes that students, corporations, and university partners need. And it leads to the idea that new ideas change the world. And I've, heard, you know, I've heard this from corporate executives. What's the most valuable thing you're, you're looking for in people you hire? Curiosity, people capable of new ideas. If you talk to artists who've worked their whole life not in a corporation or a company, but on their own. Iconoclastic people, same, they say the same thing. New ideas change the world. So I think it's pretty fundamental to just recognize that that's worth striving for. Now, to the point of innovation, again, as if we haven't talked enough about it, this is from the Stanford economist Paul Romer, which is my favorite sort of anti-definition of what's not innovation and then what is innovation. That no amount of savings and investment... And no policy of macroeconomic fine-tuning, no set of tax and spending initiatives can generate sustained economic growth. And, of course, he's referring to things like derivative markets and other shifting of currencies from one place to the other, but that won't necessarily generate a total gain in productivity unless it's accompanied by countless large and small discoveries that are required to create more value from a fixed set of natural resources. So the point is it's the only way forward that we have. And then a parallel comment from Bernowski again, that there was never a great scientist who didn't make bold guesses, and there was never a bold man whose guesses were not sometimes wild. So that comes back. That's my answer, Mark, to your question, why we don't have a slice of our endowments in innovation, our own innovation it's because it's hard to tolerate the wildness. right? You have to realize or expect there'll be some wildness. There has to be a certain tolerance for that, that to get the bold guesses that make the new innovation visible, there's going to be some wildness in the system. So this is my uh, cartoon picture of that thought. This is the bird executive uh, looking at some data there. The hour of rising versus the worm acquisition. And of course, the conclusion is the early bird gets the worm, but. The question is, is that good business practice? Is that art? Is that science? Is that business? Is that associative thinking? Putting two very different observations together, but all of a sudden you have a very disruptive innovation or idea. And that's what innovation is. It's the habit of doing that. But that's an unpredictable process. So our challenge is linking all these elements, art, sciences, technology, where each little spot by itself could look isolated But what we're hoping to do with this UVA innovation initiative is put them all together, get the coherent picture. And so, you know, this is a question I get asked a lot. You know, can UVA do this? Are we're not in a major metropolitan area? This, that, the other. Are we big enough? Are we the right size, and so on? Our answer is, given by this, uh, by analogy, that in the New York Times in 1903 there was this quote um, by the pundits that the flying machine, which will really fly will be evolved by the continuous and combined efforts of mathematicians and scientists in 1 to 10 million years. And on the same day, in 1903, Orville Wright said, well, we started assembly today. So my point to you is that UVA research is, well, we're already national champions. And we have excellent programs. We have started assembly for the future of the world because ideas change the world, and for the future of our children, so they can have a knowledge-based economy in which to thrive and be healthy and have a fulfilling life. And so I think this is why innovation at UVA is important to us, and it's um, why we wanted to share it with you, and what we're doing that may help distinguish UVA from universities that are likely to pursue knowledge delivery in standard ways, versus immersing students in exploration and, and discovery that could be really disruptive. So, Thanks for coming. This is a recording from Reunions Weekend 2010 at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. Why is it important for the university to foster innovation and entrepreneurship among students, staff, and faculty? The university's vice president for research, Tom Scalak, explains during a seminar from June 4, 2010.